Sonic State. Welcome, everybody. This is Sonic Talk number 146, I believe. Uh, hello, everybody in the chat room. Thanks for joining us. We've got a good, uh, a good fulsome amount here. Howard Scars here, John Van Eaton, uh, Matt Searles, MPS, Red Walks, good to see you back. Shannon S. Simon, Stephenson, oh, loads of us. Circuit Symphony, Oliver there, nice to see you. Well, so... Remember, you can join us if you're wondering what I'm talking about. SonicState.com forward slash live about 4pm on a Wednesday afternoon UK time when we record this uh, podcast and there's a live chat room uh, of which you may well have noticed there's a transcript on uh, uh, the last few episodes that we've done. We've got it together. Thanks very much to uh, Ratmouth for doing the code for us for that. That was a great little uh, test there. So uh, let me introduce my live guests. Um, we'll start with, um, well, let's see, last in was Mark Tinley. Uh, from sunny Cambridgeshire. Uh, how are you doing, Mark? Made it back from the school run? I did, yeah, I did. I, well, I've been out on the motorbike as well since. Oh, really? How's the... I shot uh, round to the engineer and took him some things to sandblast for me. Oh, right. Any uh, any sore parts to your uh, rear end? Or you managed to stay on the <laughs> saddle this week? Oh, no, I went on the other bike. I'm too scared of the grey bike. Oh, <laughs> right, okay. And I've started building another little one for shopping. Oh, a, a shopping a little- bike. Yeah, a little Honda step through. Is it going to fold in the middle? No, it's not. But it does fit on a rack on the back of the car. Oh, that's cool. But it's a, a little tiny Honda step through thing with 10 inch wheels. And I decided that I wanted to go for the rat rod look. So I covered it in paint strip last night in the dark, actually, I hasten to add. <laughs> and then uh, sanded off loads of paint with a wire wheel and then sprayed it with salt. And it's starting to rust quite nicely. Oh, is that the look you're going for? Yeah, I'm going for that. If you type rat rod into Google, you'll find billions of cars that look like that. They just look like they should have been scrapped long ago, except it's really the, only the bodywork that's like that. Oh, kind of I a see. Cool thing. I'm thinking of building one of them as well now. Oh, sounds like you've got the bit between your teeth on the old making. Anyway, we're glad to have you aboard, Mark. Uh, Mark can be found at aspergineering.com, where you can um, check out all his interests and professional uh, business. So, um, and who should we have next? Let's go over to the other side of the pond, um, just because it seems polite somehow, So, and, and say hello to Mr. Rich Hilton. Are you implying that I'm polite? Uh, well, generally, I like to think you are. <laughs> I'm sure you like to like think of yourself think. as polite. polite. I, mostly I do, yes. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, um, Rich Hilton, of course, is a top-end engineer working in the studio with the biggest names in the business on a regular basis, probably even this afternoon with somebody very important and famous and on a project which you obviously can't tell us about. With a huge name. Yep, I'm sure. Got to be at least three or four stories tall. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Rich, great to have you aboard. Um, I know you may, maybe you've got a couple of things you can tell us about. I noticed there were some tweets about orchestration that looked very interesting, and I've been uh, dying to pick your brains about, uh, about that. I don't know if you can talk about it later. Sure. Excellent. But first, let's introduce Dave Spears, G4Software.com. Oh, actually, I should say Hiltonius, uh, MySpace.com forward slash Hiltonius to check out what uh, Rich is up to and been up to. And uh, now we'll say hello to Dave Spears from G4Software. Hello. Hello. Uh, You sound a bit quiet, Dave, just by comparison. Yeah, I don't know if you've got a little more gain. That would be just just a little handy. Better. Uh, Oh, that's, uh, that's great, Dave. Dave Spears, of course, um, g4software.com, maker of fine musical instruments, and um, busy guy. You busy? We were talking uh, a little bit before we started the show properly that you were doing some work with uh, Isotope RX and all sorts of spectral kind of fun and games. 
Yep. And it's brilliant. Love it. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. Great. In fact, beyond love it. Beyond love it. Yeah. No, 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 you, I'm really impressed. Is it one of those tools that, you know, it's hard to master, but once you get there, it's capable of all those sort of brilliant things. A bit like sort of Melodyne was, um, which was, um, you know, what, there were people who really got it were, were quite in demand because you can do such great things with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm working with incredibly gnarly waveforms. So uh, I, I'm cleaning up a lot of stuff. And when you first listen to it, you think, it's just not going to be possible, is it? Without, you know, kind of muting, having ending up with a really muted sound and losing the life out of it. But right. actually, if you're careful, you can do, you can work wonders. Oh, brilliant. So it's, it's definitely feasible. Brilliant. Mm. Glad to hear it. And Rich, um, let's go back to you because you said you were, get, you, you were getting into some orchestration, sort of software orchestration. And uh, that was something that I was quite interested in. So what, can you tell us a bit more about that? <clears throat> well, just in general, I'd been asked to, it's interesting. I'm reverse engineering a piece we did 21 years ago for a movie. All right. Um, in preparation for that movie, we did a whole lot of electronic orchestration, mostly across Synclavier and various Kurzweil modules. Yeah. And those, or- those pieces that we created were then orchestrated and recorded um, live with real humans. And uh, what ended up in the film was a combination at various points of the electronic score and the real score. And then for some reason, I can't, uh, I, I couldn't really explain. Uh, I've been asked to take one of those pieces from the film yeah. and reorchestrate it, which is kind of an interesting process. Cause I'm sort of reverse engineering what the orchestrator did without the score. Oh, right. Um, and so, and it's turned out to be a really, really enjoyable and uh, uh, education-packed pursuit for me because the tools, obviously, today are much, much different than they were when we did it last time. And uh, I've been acquiring all these nice little orchestral libraries and such over the last few years, waiting for a moment like this, and uh, it has arrived. So I've spent now days and days, excuse me, uh, working up my newer electronic version of what had been done. Are you using Miroslav at all? Uh, no, Miroslav has not been in the house, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. at all. No. Uh, so far, I'm using uh, East-West Quantum Leap Symphonic Orchestra. I'm using Contact 3, and I'm using Structure in Pro Tools. All right. All, cool. all three samplers. Actually, there's two instances of play running. All three samplers are uh, just jamming away. So you're doing the, all the MIDI work and stuff in uh, the Pro Tools environment. Yes, absolutely. All right. Okay. Is yeah. that is that kind of a new a new thing to be working that deeply with just the MIDI and the compositional side in that in that environment, or have you done quite a lot of that before? No, not for me. It's been, I've been doing it for ten years. It's I. I find it quite, uh, it, it was always acceptable to me, and now it's downright outstanding. Uh, they have this new MIDI editor that kind of kicks the pants on almost anything else I've used. Yeah, I've seen uh, quite a lot of that recently, um, and that does look really nice. Kind of caught up. But it, yeah, it's much more of a compositional environment than it ever used to be in terms of MIDI instruments and what, what have you. Yeah, it's great. Um, well, I'm quite happy working in there. Um, I haven't bumped up against Artas yet in terms of. Uh, processor issues i did have a brief moment where it crashed and it came back seizing all eight processors and then i launched a brand new version of contact 
and it also wanted all eight processors and I had to adjust the processor load across the two to make it to put it back to happiness. But other than that, it's been fantastic. And uh, I've learned lots, particularly in the MIDI programming and in the use of uh, various tools to try to simulate realism and stay away from the grid a little more. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you had to do lots of time signature things, as is often the case with classical stuff? I think we talked about that a little bit last no, week. No, this, this particular piece doesn't have any time signature uh, changes, but what I did do was lay the original video from that piece into the session first, and I mapped tempo to that. So okay. I mapped whatever uh, changes in tempo took place expression-wise through the presentation through the presentation of the piece originally so that my version would follow those same ebb and flow kind of moments which i think also lends to some realism brilliant so it sounds like you've been kind of in pretty deep that sounds like have you got a deadline to work to or are you uh you kind of it's an ongoing thing it's not really a dead there's not really a deadline um uh it's just when the boss is pleased. Uh, <laughs> it's the yes. deadline. I know that kind of deadline. <laughs> but uh, it, actually, I think I'm pretty close at this point. I uh, I could find out differently, but I think I'm pretty close. And what are you doing for the actual acoustic spaces to kind of create that sense of realism? Is that using the well, stuff on board or are you... Um... This particular cue was um, bathed in reverb because it was supposed to have taken place in a church. Right. And so I'm using AltaVerb and I'm dumping a lot of things into it. Right, <laughs> Even okay. some things that come with their own ambience. Uh like the East West Symphonic Library stuff all is somewhat ambient to begin with even when you just use the close mics. And uh so I'm using a combination of the built-in ambiences that come along with the samples where I think they sound good and the Sydney Opera House in uh AltaVerb. A good choice. It sounds great. Sydney's it's, always the one. <laughs> well, it's a nice one. I tried a few. I tried uh, the one in Amsterdam, and I tried tried a few, and uh, that's the one I settled on lately. Brilliant. Going going real well. Sounds I'm like very, a really I'm, interesting project, actually. It is. It's it's, uh, and I'm learning tons. So uh, it's it's really fun. Cool. Well, yeah. uh, I, I kind of, it's nice to get your teeth into something like that once in a while. That kind of makes that forces you to explore a little bit outside of what you normally have to do every day, and and, and just kind of get in there, isn't it? Yep, flex yeah. those muscles and decide when to do performance things and when to look for a sample that does the trill. You know, things like that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's always hard, isn't it? Because um, it's quite you know the trill is not always in the right speed the right you know and has the right well, dynamics the, and all that the kind trick of stuff. is that they shouldn't be together actually the trills across the section so one of the tricks is if there's a section trilling they're not trilling together you know what i mean they, it's got to come apart a bit yeah smeared mhm smeared yeah. and i've been smearing attacks quite a bit as well i'm getting <laughs> a lot more realism out of that too where where the whole ensemble would attack on a certain point in the tune you don't want it all lined up. No, I suppose not. But occasionally when it's a vigorous one, they, they tend to be more on the money, I suppose, when the downbeat's much more identifiable. It's still still, still. got to be a little splash on the front. Ah, okay. And it shouldn't be a perceptible splash. It should just be enough to make it believable. Wow. This what is a big, are you playing I, with velocity attacks on envelopes as well? No. 
I haven't needed to just between manipulating velocities and the positioning of the attacks. I've been getting it, but but uh, but that could happen too. That, that could you know I could see a, a reason to do that, but I haven't needed to for this piece. That sounds like really interesting. Um, I suppose we should get on and start looking at perhaps some of the things in the list. And one of the first things that came up was uh, this: this uh, a film. It's about it's a film. It's about techno. Techno is more than just stripping everything down. It's about rearranging simple elements to create something extraordinary. It's about a way of living in the modern world and tolerating it on your own terms. It's hard to imagine not making music. What makes an artist an artist is, in the very first place, the urge to create. It's so much about sound. It's all about sound. Speaking in code is to make music which no one will be able to decode. That's a clip from the trailer of Speaking in Code, which is a new film. Um, I guess it's um, doing the rounds of the festivals and stuff, trying to get distributorship because it says coming soon, and that's what they usually say. Uh, it's going to be uh, showing on the 24th of September at the Boston Film Festival, where it's an official selection. It's a film by uh, Amy Grill, edited by Jason Blanchard, and it's it features a lot, quite a lot of kind of big techno DJs and musicians, and. It, the reason I, I I picked this is because I thought it was it was interesting that sort of techno is often seen as a uh, as a lesser form, but it looked to me like really this is actually kind of contemporary electronic music really, and it's kind of good to see perhaps a film going into this. And there's some interesting quotes in the actual trailer. I won't play it all because it's a, it's quite long. Um, I, I know um, well, Mark, you're kind of quite you know you 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 had quite a lot of involvement in early techno stuff so i thought you know this might appeal to you do you think you'd like to go and see it was there anything about it that um, you you dug um i'm interested in any spiritual aspect about anything that might have happened to people through listening to techno but beyond that i think that um I'm a bit technoed out after 20 <laughs> years, actually. So well, it's evolved an enormous, it, it's evolved an enormous amount of uh, amount. But it's interesting you say the spiritual side of it because there are some quotes in there about about the energy and the feeling that people get when they're you know particularly when they're DJing to a room of people. I mean, because essentially the stuff that they're they're saying is it's actually very very simple. It's just the kind of precise positioning and the sounds and the construction and deconstruction that seems to be that what gets that absolutely spot on I know. Yeah, without any doubt in nightclubs there is some kind of uh unspoken communication between people whether it's in body language or whether it's in some spiritual realm i don't know but there's there's definitely something that goes on there and that's what that's the part of it that always fascinated me the most and continues to fascinate me it's like large groups of people together doing the same thing in the same headspace, um, this, I just I'd love to know how it worked or why. Mm, well, maybe maybe we can find out with this film. Uh, Dave Spears, are you uh, something that interests you? I know you work with um, a, a prominent techno. I suppose they could be called techno. I mean, perhaps it's a too, bit too broad a term. Artist. Yeah, I would like to see it, actually. I, I thought there were some quite interesting names, and I'm quite a big fan. I noticed one of the names is um, Apparat, and I do like their stuff a lot. And also Monolake, and he's one of the Ableton guys, isn't he? Oh, yes, that's true, isn't it? I'm, so I think, you know, he's always kind of pushing, pushing and pushing. So I think it would be interesting from that perspective. I what wonder, I like about techno is the discipline. 
You have yeah. to be very, very disciplined. There's no room for jazz noodling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's not the... really any room for singing either, is there, actually? No, it's, it's, it's generally instrumental. I mean, if you take the techno label away from it and sort of describe it as instrumental electronic music of a, yeah. of similar tempo that might be a, that might be a, another way of looking at it. i don't know i i i've been getting into more and more of it because just the sort of the sounds there seems to be this real ability to create these very small and dis- distinct but um um sounds within the current sort of electronic and techno which used to be all about kind of really cranking the drums up and just sort of distorting and filling up the space with huge huge sort of distorted and over the top sounds whereas this seems to be much more precise and crafted these days it's sort of there's a there's it's become more of an artistry i suppose it's very tight but there's also a lot of air that goes on yeah i think Which i like i do like that's that. what i quite like about it. i'm i'm guessing that perhaps uh, rich hilton it's not your uh, immediately uh, <laughs> music of focus but well i could say that it's music for people who can't play but yeah it's um, a, i mean it's a different it's a t- i would feel a, a lot better about it if it were music being created by people who could play um because then it would be an extension of their previously generated musical abilities but that said i learn a lot from the kinds of programs that encourage this kind of work like ableton and i learn a lot watching these guys and seeing what they're doing to manipulate sound yeah but from the standpoint of music creators being guys who play records for you i have a fundamental deep-seated issue (laughs) should we leave it there (laughs) you've got fundamental deep seated issues with the guys who make techno did you say i think there's i I don't know them no No, i think i I also think it's not fair to say that they can't play because there's a lot of people who can play and just choose to present their music using this medium and i think that's and that and that's i guess dave coming back to the the discipline aspect of it because it must be you know if you are a classically trained or a jazz pianist or something and you happen to be doing this kind of pretty good deep you know you're deep into this genre the the uh the, the temptation to break out into a blistering solo must be uh, very hard to, to suppress at it's times. very interesting i mean one of the guys that i work with is is very heavily influenced by people like steve Reich, and he is actually a classically trained pianist and and again for him it's that discipline and also that hypnotic element i think is probably really pertinent yeah that's the thing that i couldn't get because i i just kept you know because i would keep i'm sure i've said this before i just keep thinking i need to do something it's been been eight bars i can't <laughs> i can't just i can't leave it you know there has to be where's the chorus i've got to have it <laughs> the way yeah. we used to do it is we used to fill up an entire 24 track reel with loop of all different things that could any any of the 24 things could interact with any of the other 24 things, but you know, in any combination, literally in any combination, then it's all about breaks and breaking things down by using mutes and opening things up again. And it's the same process that Adam used to create all of his records. But instead of using a 24 track tape and loops, he used uh, an ensonic sequencer and a drum machine and just turned things on and off and left the same thing running for like, hours <laughs> yeah i mean that's what um uh oh, what's his name uh william orbit used to do fill up the tape yeah. fill up the tape you know and, and make a performance and then edit so you'd record you know record to half inch tape or whatever just record take it all down and then edit the 
the sections together into into a piece. It's, it's a different way of construction, which I suppose in some ways is kind of a bit music concrete in in some ways. Right. But there's also I mean, not, the other thing about moving filters around is that moving filters around becomes a really important part of performance then. It doesn't just become... Oh, we're going to like have one, you know, we're going to draw in a long sweep on Cubase. No, you're not. You're going to turn all the knobs on the machine and you're going to make it talk so mm. that when you come through a section that's just doing the same thing for like 10 minutes, there's one filtering thing in there that's actually speaking and playing almost, a, well, it's playing a musical part, but it's yeah. playing a musical part as in ch- terms of changes of tam- timbre rather than changes of melody. Can I say one more thing about it? Of course, Rich. To put it in context, um, I do understand and appreciate the fact that our artistic culture has, to a great extent, gone over to a montage world, both in terms of film and in visual art and in music. And so the, the situation that Mark describes where you have, whatever, a dozen or two dozen concurrently running loops that you can then pull things together out of in differing combinations... I do understand the the usefulness and the value of that, but it does also play into my sort of deep-rooted wish that the music was being played. I can't wait to see this film. I think it's going to be good, and I hope they get general distributorship. Um, Speakingincode.com, there's there's a trailer there and various kind of way you can see it screened and and things. It's, It's sort of coming up now. That is uh, an excerpt from the Bach, the JS Bach Crab Cannon, um, which is uh, it, it's an illustration of how it works uh, forwards, backwards in a Mobius strip and against itself, forwards and backwards and reversed and all sorts of dimensions. And it, it um, I've, I've called this one a lovely symmetry. And all it really did was um, it's not the the cleverness of this particularly, but it's more about the relationship of mathematics and music, which uh, is pretty fascinating i started looking into this and obviously this or i'm I'm assuming that bach wrote this with the idea of the symmetry of it in mind and um there's a real sort of fixation with the kind of the golden ratio and the magic numbers and the what are they called the uh fibonacci numbers uh, which i don't know anything about but the golden ratio of 1.618033987 obviously there's more decimal places seems to have been applied by a number of people over musical history i mean obviously we've got bark we've got uh bartok sati uh even bt have used it amongst other people so it's definitely got a uh a means and i know i've never really kind of applied mathematics to any sort of music making exercises uh, i i suspect maybe mark you might have done because i know you have a kind of quite a, a a general interest stroke obsession in numbers i mean would you say that that yeah, was I've, have you looked I into did, this i've looked into quite a lot of these sorts of things yeah i don't i kind of get very excited about them and then follow them for a bit and then you know try making music in all those sorts of ways but um you know what? There's nothing like sitting down with a guitar and bashing it and seeing what noise it makes. Yeah, I suppose it's I, I easier. I swing between the two things. I, I had an MC202. That was the first music sequencer I had, Roland MC202. And I worked out 
that those 192 tiny little steps per bar related to so many steps on the drum machine. And I used to do everything on grid paper with maths, and I used to write my bass lines on grid paper, and you know, like mathematical, that fine grid paper. Yeah, I know the graph and stuff. And draw little Xs for all the beats and all the notes and everything. Well, that's one way also of backing up your data, I suppose, in hard copy. <laughs> Another concept. <laughs> but I've looked at all sorts of stuff, like, yeah, that. Uh, what's the 178 hertz thing? Is that Fibonacci? It is, I'm not it? sure. It's a sec- I didn't bother writing down the sequence of numbers because it meant absolutely nothing to me. But there's a formula that you can apply, and the Fibonacci numbers have come from, you know, 12th century uh, Indian mathematical metrics, and it's uh, it's just totally beyond me. But I'm guessing there's quite a lot of this about. I know, Rich, I mean, you've kind of got quite a history of, uh, you know, you studied music um, uh, at university. And so, you know, this presumably means a lot more to you than it does to me. <laughs> well, it means a lot to me. I don't know about that. Um, well, box music means a lot to me in general. In addition to this, uh, there was some, there's a fugue he wrote, which you can hold up to a mirror and play. Well, uh, uh, and it's the same both ways. It's, um, it's not the same, but it works both ways. Right. Same kind of deal. And uh, he, yeah, it, it's a, there's a lot of context involved in understanding Bach because there was not free, a, there was, the people were not freely changing keys much before Bach, and he was sort of vilified for it in his time and apparently was kicked out of some churches. And such. Oh, um, uh, so what was absolutely revolutionary about his music is his willingness to freely uh, move the key center around um, as compared to, say, Vivaldi, for example. Right. And do you think um, that was down to the sort of mathematical things that he was sort of interested in, or just the way it took him? Well, it, the tuning systems, the advancement of tuning systems made it possible to do that. Oh, okay. Um, uh, equal temperament or various variants of that. Um, but uh, I was fascinated by this, and I really enjoyed the visual presentation of the Yeah, it's good, and, good video and, uh, presentation, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it sort of might, it might help to uh, spark some interest in those who were not previously familiar with Bach's genius to investigate further. And so in that way, I find it um, a very positive video. I enjoyed it. Dave Spears, has, have you ever kind of looked at the compositional thing from a mathematical point of view and tried to apply any of this stuff? Or do you know any other people who, who do that kind of stuff? Is it pre- more prevalent than perhaps I, I, I would think? Uh, no, I don't know. Um... I know someone who, anyway, that's completely different. Um, no, it's the honest truth. Uh, this was a harpsichord, right? Yes, I believe. I mean, it must have been, I don't know whether it's sampled or sequenced or whatever. I don't know, but it sounded uh, like a harpsichord. Which I understand is a very difficult instrument to play. And in my opinion, a bloody difficult instrument to listen to when played like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry to be so flippant, but uh, no, I was I was quite intrigued by it, but uh, not intrigued enough. In fact, this appeared on Facebook, and Howard Scar made a very interesting comment by, and said, by inverting one strip of paper before twisting and sticking the ends together, the result is exactly the same as the front to back and back to front previously seen and heard. Oh, that's cool. beyond, uh, that's beyond me. I'm, cool. I, I I can't even kind of get my head around it. That's how. But they must have. These guys must have been master mathematicians anyway, because music and maths was much more intertwined when they were writing. So Bach probably understood. 
yeah. and deliberately wrote it like that. But it also music was very much the sort of, um, it was also the kind of play thing of the intellectual as well, wasn't it? It was the, it was the idea, the higher, the higher, uh, what's the word? You know, the, the fact that it worked on higher levels was also what um, got them so big and famous as well, as well as being a good tune, of course. Well, there were well, more rules as well, weren't there? Yeah. They didn't really start being famous until Beethoven. Right. In that way. I mean, in other words, the guys who hired him were. Right. You yeah, know, yeah, Haydn, yeah. Haydn wrote 106 symphonies, not because he felt like it, but because he worked for a guy who ordered up 106 symphonies. Yeah. The, pa- the patronage thing. Was yeah. that his, yeah, patron. I've just remembered that the thing I've been playing around with is something called solfeggio sequences or solfeggio frequencies. Right, and they're I, all to do with like the building blocks of the universe. Wow! Uh, I don't, I, yeah, I, I've not heard of that. I don't know anything about that. If you type solfeggio or solfeggio frequencies into YouTube, you get loads of fractal videos, which go with and the the uh, it's something to do with 178 hertz is the okay. base frequency of that. It's kind of terrifying when you start looking into all of this stuff. How interrelated it all is, and where you know how how these threads just kind of tend to permeate all the things that feel good and all the things that sort of please us. But what, feel, but what feels really good is, like, really loud noise, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that generates so, um, adrenaline, I mean, if it? I go to Santapod and I watch a drag car go down, that sends all the hairs up on the back of my neck, and I just go, whoa, what was that? And all the adrenaline's gone in my system and everything. And same effect, when you plug a guitar into a Marshall and turn it up full and hit the string, it's just like, wow. And that's what feels really good. Well, so to you, do we help. really care whether it has a melody. Yeah, I think well, everybody has a different thing that makes them feel. Not yes, I likes care. Rock music. <laughs> raising uh, raising my hand. The, yes, I care. But the soft, but, lulling melody kind of. In those, not necessarily soft and lulling, but the point is that the orchestra and the pipe organ in that time was the conceptual martial amp of which you speak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, they could. But, but the. Uh, okay. So without dynamic, there's no, you know, once you've plugged the Marshall amp in and you've done that, if you then play it flat out for two hours, you come away with your ears bleeding and are past the initially explosive uh, adrenal response. You can't keep it up for all that long. Uh, I mean, the dynamics of the orchestra are unbelievable. I love going and seeing orchestras. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we are so used to everything being compressed to hell and maximized. When you actually hear some dynamic, it's, it really strains the ear. You know, you, you use those muscles that uh, perception of muscles that you don't haven't heard, haven't used for a long time. And certainly me anyway, not that I spend a lot of time listening to orchestras. I I, I think I should, I think I need a cultural, uh, a cultural holiday. Maybe this is the DJ's role then is to add dynamics to the tracks by doing those fade in, fade out things they do where they drop the music out for mm. like 30 Well, that's seconds. about density, isn't it? A lot of the time as well. But yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's dynamics in there too. Well, um, anyway, that was, uh, that was a fun topic. I'm glad we managed to cover that. A nice, um, nice, what's the word? A mirror, mirroring between topic one and topic two there. I think it's probably time I, I ran uh, an ad because uh, obviously it's getting on a bit in time. We like to say thank you very much to, the first of our show sponsors. Uh, we really do appreciate them uh, 
sponsoring the show, and that's to Roland.co.uk, who'd like to bring your attention to the Juno DI, which uh, I saw a couple of guys from Roland at the recent Plaza show, and they're saying it's going really well. You know, people are really digging it, and uh, I know I did when I when I reviewed it. Uh, it's a thousand presets, all kind of based around the Phantom G engine. Um, it's got a live mic input. Uh, you can play along. It's got uh, reverb and uh, effects on that. You can also bring in uh, MP3s, standard MIDI files, and WAVs, and play them inside it too. It's 128 voice polyphonic. It's got 16 part multi timbrality. It's very much a performance based synthesizer, but because it comes with this uh, USB based MIDI editor, you can get in really deep as well. So you can program it like a synthesizer too. I know that uh, uh, Oliver, who's sometimes in the chat room, uh, is always saying, you know, it is actually really quite a deep synth once you get in there outside of it. So please do go and check out the Roland Juno DI. It's got a lot to offer you if you're looking for a lot of voices and a big palette of sounds and, and a good deal because. Uh, let's face it it's not at all uh, expensive for what you get so head over to roland.co.uk or if you're elsewhere in the world check it out and if you end up buying one somehow tell them that we sent you because it'll make everybody happy so and we do say thank you very much for roland.co.uk's continued sponsorship we very much appreciate it Okay, where's our next topic coming from? Let me see. Ah, another step in the digital live experience. Uh, and this is really uh, just a catalyst for a discussion, really, um, which was there's, there's a new uh, Sancroft SI1, which is uh, 32 mic inputs mapped on 16 faders. Uh, it's designed to drop in where a small analog console sat, and it's for live work. And uh, there seems to be a, n- a large number of digital consoles coming out for the live arena. Um, there's obviously the there's something from Digico which I saw at Plaza. I forget the name of it, but it was you know expensive but small. Uh, there's also the DigiDesign Venue SC48, which again is a small footprint, self-contained. This one it runs Pro Tools LE. Uh, it's got all the uh, analog I/O sort of built in. You can pl- you know, and it it, it I was wondering, I was hoping to get an interview while I was at Plaza with some of the um, digital desk manufacturers, but didn't get a chance to hook up with anybody. And I was wondering whether or not there's any difference in the performance aspect to this hardware. Because obviously, you know, in a live environment, you can really hear the difference, the dynamics. You can hear the quality of the sample rate converts because you're listening on much larger audio systems with less compression uh, in terms of artifact, you know, actual data compression rather than audio compression. And I just wondered whether it was um, whether anybody had anything to to add to that. I know Dave Spears, you you were at Reading recently, weren't you? We kind of went down to see a few bands at Reading Festival in the UK. It must have been a kind of lot of big stages. I presume they must have been using either the Digidesign system or something similar down there did you yeah, I mean, the, have you noticed a difference it, uh in terms of what sound quality yeah uh no because everything sounds rank down at reading oh does it <laughs> <laughs> i think it's because the council com- constantly put these kind of noise caps on things don't they i think they allow them to drive it for the last few minutes but it's like you know get a breeze and it's like oh okay so i'll go and stand over there now so i can hear it uh, but it was quite interesting talking to uh, a couple of, in fact, I tried to get an engineer on today who does a lot of front of house stuff. Um, and he was strictly analog for a long time and is now completely digital purely because of the convenience in terms of going around and setting up for various halls and being able to recall that stuff. Um, it just makes his life so much easier. So I think from a performance aspect for me, analog desks still rule. I think from a, practical aspect for a lot of people who work at this every day 
the digital desks have uh, become de rigueur, as it were. Don't they build in, you know, the opportunity to grab hold of things and do the performance aspect to it as well anyway? In, I think so. I mean, obviously... Things. Once you kind of know the know the desk inside out, then it's then it's possible. But it's this kind of layered aspect. You know, throw a kind of layman like me initially, I'd kind of get, yeah. Uh, I mean, in the same way that like the old school um, Yamaha O2R, you know, those sort of desks, it was very much layered in terms of um, you know, layer one was was uh, was you know maybe the uh, analog input channels, layer two was tape returns, layer three might be auxiliaries. But with these things, I think most of them now you can mix and match it, so you can have you know my first eight channels might be my basic drums. Then you know I might have a couple of effect sends on faders. You see what I mean? So you can actually yeah. set lay up the layout as you need. So you don't need a discrete control for every single eventuality because you're very unlikely to be doing, um, you know, sending the bass drum to the flanger, for instance. You know, but you might need it on a certain channel. So you can discreetly set the whole control surface up to fit the gig. So the layers thing is slightly different. It's not yeah. as regimented. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, obviously, the Underworld guys, they use big Midas desk. And, I mean, he's constantly muting, demuting, changing EQ settings, um, various sends and whatnot. So the, the desk is, a, is basically his kind of instrument. Yeah. So I think from that perspective, he needs those kind of tactile, everything to be tactile, <laughs> as opposed to kind of um, scrolling through loads of layers to get to the right um, filter or you know, certain EQ settings. I wonder if it's possible to set things <clears> up to, you know, once you kind of realise what your movements are, you can go, well, we could set up a surface that would give you access to all the things that you usually do and some, and you wouldn't need all the rest of it. But I mean, I, I wonder whether the sound suffers. Uh, I know, Rich, you, you've, uh, you've done a lot of big gigs and probably go and see quite a lot of big gigs. Do you find that you can tell if there's, gonna, if there's a front of house digital setup? Um, the last time I could tell, I walked back to see whether or not what I was hearing, which seemed to be the singer singing into an auto-tune, was in fact happening. And it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that, obviously. I mean, you know, that's another aspect to it. But A band with which Mark and I are both very familiar. But um, besides mm. that, um, as relates to my experience playing in Chic, the advantage of the digital console, we used to walk in and our European sound crew I'd step up on stage and I'd lay my hands down and it would be exactly where I left off at the end of the last gig. Right. It was unbelievable. Like the mix that you started with was somewhere between 90 and 98% of the way there. That's got to be good though, right? Oh, it was wonderful, especially if you have good monitor speakers, but it was wonderful. And uh, I don't have, as with most tools, I don't have any problem with the tools. I have the problems with the way people choose to use them. Right. I wonder, because I wonder whether or not, you know, I mean, it, you take this to an extreme, to its extreme evolution, you know, in the way that we've become used to hearing uh, all of our music, you know, a lot of us anyway, the consumer has been, has got to listen, has got used to listening to music in sort of fairly low grade ways, whether there's a danger of the live environment ending up that way, just because, you know, there's no alternative to going down the digital route. And then it's kind of like, well, we may as well use it. You know, I, I, I wonder, cause I don't know whether or not there's a difference in the sound because presumably, you know, I would imagine, you know, you want to be working at 96 K or above in a live environment because of the transients, because of all the, just the, the volume of air you can move around. I'm not sure it matters more in live than it does in the studio. I'm not sure about I'm not sure it doesn't either. I'm just not sure about mm. that whole 
that whole premise. Yeah, I'd like to know. I don't know. Um, d- Mark, do you yeah. think you can tell? I don't think I could tell, no. No, I wonder. Um, if, I was, if I was doing sound for someone for, for a really long period of time and I was always using an analog desk and they didn't change any of their gear and then I switched to a digital one, yeah, I could probably tell. But I, d- I don't know. I mean, there's so much digital gear in racks these days that there's probably a whole load of other digital stuff it's going through that we haven't even thought about. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, the crossovers and the I mean, what's on... Okay, so here's the thing, right, actually, if thinking about it, I, I remember the TurboSound PA systems had those, um, what was the Roland digital delay? The SDEs. With the, with the green, kind of greeny blue LEDs on it. Was it an SDE? SDE it's only like 1000. a 12-bit delay, isn't SDE it? SDE 1000 or 2000, yeah. Yeah, and they, they were setting up the delay between the stacks using them. Right. So the whole of the live sound was going into those, and then they were compensating for the difference between the projection of the tweeters and the bass bins and uh, the you know the side stacks and the uh, yeah what are they you know for, oh, right so yeah I think further back in the audience was all being they were adjusting all the time uh, delays between the speaker stacks using them. So really, you're only actually getting 12-bit sound, aren't you? Because they were using the uh, wet output. Wow, from them. that's an interesting thought. I hadn't and they yeah, were punching it, you know, let's just make the delay between that stack and that stack 15 milliseconds. So you've only got 12-bit sound at that point because whatever, whatever they whatever whatever do that. Whatever change. the A to Ds and D to As they happen to be um, throwing in the machine. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a terrifying thought, and- isn't it? Got to be, um, got to be digital the way they do that these days, anyway. So, <laughs> that's an so there you go. So, uh, yes. so even if you're throwing a beautiful analog signal in the front of that, when it comes back out the end of whatever they're using to change the stacks, the, the delay differences, it's uh, it's gone anyway, isn't it? So, that's yeah, that's a very good point. I hadn't thought mm-hmm. of that. <laughs> yeah. What a terrifying call. I think they've probably got much higher grade, uh. Um, delay compensation <clears throat> units and what have you now, uh, which I don't know what, I, I guess the sample rates would be as high as possible. I mean, I would, I'd like to think so, but uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. We don't know. I, I have one more thing to add. Okay. That Soundcraft desk doesn't look like it gives you as much visual feedback as I would want in a pressurized situation. Now I'd have to see it up close and have it demonstrated to show me where it might, but what they don't have on there is the big screen that follows your channel selections around. Oh, don't they? I thought there was a fairly large L- o- OLED thing on to the right of that. I'm looking at the desk now, and I oh, even right. went to their website, and I didn't see any large anything. I saw a bunch of tiny little LED, you know, LCDs underneath the knob near just above the faders that were kind of switching function, I guess, Okay, what uh, you're was- asking for. But it doesn't give you – basically, most of the other ones give you – of you know full whatever 13 15 inch monitor that shows oh, yeah, you yeah. all the channel parameters i bet i bet you can so plug one in though i mean i would be very surprised if you couldn't just plug one one or two of those in and stick yeah, maybe them up so. over maybe the top so. but yeah i take your point and that's again i mean it's, it's interesting that you know perhaps we might ultimately end up having uh, a lot of interface design in uh affected by what's happening in the live arena environment because you know that is real mission critical hands-on hardware you know controller stuff and maybe some of that's going to filter down to synthesizers and other midi controllers and things because it's been tested and in such high pressure environments and they really do have to get it right who Mm -hmm. knows 
Yeah, fair point. They do say here on on in your description on Sonic State that uh, they've chosen to use a combination of rotary enco- encoders and OLED screens on every channel, so the engineer mixes at source without recourse to a central screen. Mm. An interface welcomed by many engineers since the SI3's launch last year, apparently. Okay. I, I was not among those engineers. So I don't <laughs> Clearly know what not. they're thinking. <laughs> don't know what they're thinking, and I'd like to see. You crazy maybe, fellows. <laughs> I'd like to see what they know that I don't know about. It. Hi, everybody. It's Houston Singletary for the Ableton Live Clinic. Today's hey, lesson we're going to go through and talk about compressor side chain. We've got a kick drum. So it's like to really push that threshold down to get that pumping effect. And what's happening is this kick drum is feeding in on the downbeat. When it does, it completely compresses that signal by using that impulse kick drum that we are feeding into the sidechain input. But when there's no signal coming into the sidechain input, it releases that threshold, allowing that sound to pass back through in its natural state. All right, let's look over to the art pattern. I did the same thing here. Let's fire that off. Right now, it's just playing a basic arpeggiator pattern and a bright top-end stuff there. Let's go to the compressor. Let's open up our toggle for our sidechain. See, I've got sidechain, audio input, chooser, impulse. There we go. Good to go. Let's just turn it on on the fly, see what happens. And we'll fire that drum loop off one more time. Give ourselves a little reference there. And now we're going to go to my bass line. There we go. And that was Houston Singletary there, uh, one of our favorite demo guys. I know, Dave, you know him well, um, showing us how to use sidechain compression in Ableton Live, uh, which obviously, you know, is very much a a sound of the moment, particularly for dance music. Um, But I thought it was uh, a good lesson. And um, that but that wasn't really the focus of the the point. The point was, I was just thinking in terms of music production and mix techniques, what do you think has had the most influence over the sound of contemporary music? Um, in recent years or, you know, ever perhaps. I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe start with you, Rich, because, uh, you you know, you've been mixing records for some time and been exposed to it. I mean, there, there must be techniques that you're using that kind of are new uh, and older. Um, uh, <laughs> I'd rather talk about a- uh, Ableton and, and Houston. Okay. I think they did a fantastic demo, and this shows, once again, why I think Ableton is an outstanding music creation tool in, and and how good he is at explaining how you can use things creatively. But I don't really have like a book of standard techniques I use. I kind of approach each problem as its own sure. moment in time. And I think that's part of what's fun about it. Now, do I often throw some kind of bus compressor on the master fader these days? Yeah. Do I hit it hard? Not usually. Um do I, I mean, in other words, there are obviously things I do to kick drum, or there are things I do to stereoize a guitar, or there are things I do, you know, but it's all, it, it's, you know, it's like cooking. It's about this meal. It's, it won't work with the same salad you made for the last meal. You got to make it for this meal. So mm. I, I tend to be very application specific. Uh, somebody mentions Melodyne in the chat room. Yeah, I use Melodyne all the time on vocals and things to bring, you know, try to bring the pitch in without letting it letting on to people that i do unlike unlike uh when kanye west grabbed the microphone the other day and started talking and you can hear all the pitch shifting going on (laughs) (laughs) while he after he grabbed the microphone that was amazing that was funny to that part of it funny not the i didn't do it 
you know, uh, I don't, I don't have any particular, I guess I don't think of it as a bag of tricks. I just, I'm very problem specific. Okay. I mean, I was thinking in sort of in general terms, I would say probably the biggest, the, say the biggest, you know, uh, technique that has changed the way music, we listen to me or that music is presented is probably just compression. Right. In terms of, you know, because it, it, it's, it's become, I mean, I remember when, uh, you know, when I first started out kind of getting involved in music, I couldn't, have, you know, compressors were expensive. It was hard to get hold of them. You just didn't, you did without them. And that was kind of what made the difference between your crappy amateur sounding recording and something that had been professionally treated. But between then and now, compression has come to take a bigger and bigger and bigger part in the shaping of the sound and the ma- certainly the maximizing and what have you. So I was just thinking, you know, along those lines really. And I think that would probably be the single biggest and most widely used tool for, for sure. I don't know, Dave, do you agree? Uh, yeah. Uh, Excellent. Thank you. Ma- maximizing in particular, God almighty. I mean, talk about overused, but I know guys who are just completely obsessed with, compressions and different compressors and one of them even has uh, their email is professor compressor and i think that just really kind of sums him up but he's the most amazing front of house guy uh, and actually a really good a really brilliant engineer and right i love sitting down and just kind of watching those guys and just looking and looking and trying to analyze because they're hearing stuff that you know i don't hear yeah and i'm kind of always asking questions but yeah i mean compression is it isn't it I think that might be one of the biggies. Um, but yes, a great sidechain lesson there. And um, there's a, incidentally, there's another one coming up from Houston, uh, which is going to be going into the vocoder in depth. So one to watch out for, for sure. Mark, um, is that, is sidechaining something that you use much of? I, I, I don't, I'm kind of uh, thinking I should. I have done in the past. I'm now going to demonstrate that I watch far too much Ed and Outcho because reverb reverb was the answer which is the song he always sings in every episode um i think that one of the most uh the biggest changes brought about has been brought about by the emergence of more so digital than the great british spring but reverb okay because you can create uh imaginary spaces in your stereo field which can present the music in a completely different way and if if you go back to the 40s they probably had like two or three microphones and they stuck them in front of the orchestra and the singer and he had the desk with three knobs and that was it they had no real control over the ambience and what could be done with the space right mm. And then we had like plate reverb and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, studios had that. But in terms of, I'm, I mean, I think we're talking home recording here, aren't we? What filtered down to us well, guys suppose, at home. Yeah. The Great British Spring, being able to have reverb and mess around with the space of where things were in a mix, I think was as important to me as being able to compress things. And I think... Uh, when digital reverb came out, particularly the Yamaha R1000, which is a brilliant reverb, and I've still got one in my rag, um, I think that that totally changed everything. And then when you bring side chaining into that, and you talk about gating reverbs and side chaining the gates, mm. um, or side chain side chaining the reverb channel off the drums, yeah, 
and actually getting that whole gated reverb sound that was really important and yet to the whole 80s sound as well before yes. you had a digital reverb that would do the gate for you yeah, they exactly. didn't do that when they first came out you had to create that effect the, the, the old drama 201 yes exactly and then pulsing things I mean, Duran Duran's sequences are all about pulsing things. They're nearly always Nick playing chords or doing stuff, and then it's it's things are pulsed off hi-hats or pulsed off. Uh, maybe there's an arpe- one arpeggio running off a of Jupiter 8, but then that arpeggio is pulsing loads of other things, like guitars are pulsed, all sorts of things are pulsed. Mm. You go back and listen to some of uh, the early Duran Duran stuff, like all those guitars which sound really tight are all pulsed off other things. Oh, I see. Mm, so I would a- use side chaining on on gates a lot. Yeah, yeah I used but to probably use that. less so on uh, compression, which is why I thought this was really interesting. Well, it's that. I mean, it's the it, it, again, but it tends to. I mean, he was using it for a very rhythmical effect, but it gives the impression of uh, heavy dynamic. Um, Breathing, breathing, which which is it. what, yeah, but also it's it sounds like what a, a system does when you're really slamming it really hard, and the overall system limiters are kicking in, and it kind of makes it exciting. And particularly if yeah. you're using it in the bass area, you get that kind of distortion feel without the drive, I suppose. Yeah, that can be quite can be quite interesting. Mm. I used the word suck. Suck, Damn. you did. Suck is fine. <laughs> I mean, no, no, in this context, it, you're allowed. I, I guess also you could create that whole effect on your backing and then put a really uh, beautifully balanced vocal in over the top of it without it doing that sucking thing to the vocals. So mm. you create the energy of the track yeah. and then put the vocal in over the top of Which that. Which is how, how it's used a lot. But I, I think what the one thing that always has escaped me is there's, there's a particular kind of like shaker or hi-hat groove, which uh, certainly uh, Basement Jack's kind of really pioneered. And I reckon that must be done with sidechain listening to that demo. Mm. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm. It's interesting what Mark said, though, because I think reverb was the big 80s thing. Yeah. And then in the 90s, delays kind of took over from that. Yeah. And now it's true. just compression and maximising and loudness wars. Certainly is. I'd better get this other ad in before we run out of... Um podcast um so this is uh, our second of our show sponsor we'd like to say thank you very much for the continued support from loopmasters.com uh, the number one website and sample cd distributor dedicated to bringing you the most inspirational collections of royalty free sounds they got a load of new stuff out since last time in fact i've got uh, a package which has got some uh samples from their broken beat drum library and dark house library uh, you just send an email to free stuff at sonicstate.com follow the instructions and while you're at it if you want to keep abreast of the stuff that they're releasing because it does come out at a rate of knots you could sign up for the newsletter obviously you don't have to do that to get this stuff but uh, it makes makes the whole thing work not a lot nicer for everybody so if you do want to check the box please do um, just send an email to freestuff at sonicstate.com and also go check out uh, loopmasters.com for all their latest release and also there is looptv.net it's their, their fifth podcast which is the august edition uh is a new one they caught up with rock electro and brakes dj hyper and also they talked to simon gray about uh the new propeller heads record software uh jody Wistonoff from way out west and some more talks with uh 
Rob Jones, of course, who's I think he's showing us. I'm not sure what he's showing us, but uh, go and check it out. I also chat to the 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 brilliant beatboxer Dub Effects, who uh, we filmed at the recent Limbs show. He's brilliant about what gear powers his live setup. So head over to LoopTV.net to check that out. Check the samples out LoopMasters.com, and if, and if you want the free sample packs and check out the loops, email freestuff at SonicState.com. And we thank LoopMasters.com for their continued sponsorship of the show. That's a selection of the BFD snares that come from the new Volume 1, uh, new BFD snares. It's got uh, Roy Haynes uh, edition, Dave Weckle, uh, FHP Fiberglass, a Yamaha Bamboo snare, Mike Borden, lots of stuff. Download only from F Expansion Web Shop. Uh, I think it's $70 or €49. Euros. And it, I thought it sounded great. And clearly what they've done with those demos is just put the... Uh, replaced one snare with um with one of the ones in the library and the rest of the groove was the same and i just thought wow this is getting very very authentic isn't it i mean what what do you think do you think we're in danger of uh exterminating the recording drummer no dave i'll tell you one thing though i'll tell you one thing uh drummers make the best drum programmers because everybody else seems to forget that you have a left hand and a right hand and certain things can't happen when that hand isn't is playing a crash cymbal or an open hi-hat. So actually, in terms of realism, drummers definitely uh, still have the edge. I know some fantastic drummers and sitting behind, um, you know, sitting in uh, Logic with the right gear and they'll churn out an amazingly convincing part. Yeah, what, using BFD or <laughs> tune tracks or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that not just illustrate my point or is it, um, I mean, the knowledge is obviously important. It's- it kind of ties in with what Rich was saying about the orchestral stuff is that you have to climb inside the mind of that player. So it's no, you know, if you want to, if you want to do a trill, um, let's say on a violin trill, you're probably better off doing it via pitch bend um, messages as opposed to just playing those two notes. Right. And it's things like that, that you kind of, you really do have to climb inside the mind of that player. And I know with drummers, there's all sorts of jokes that could be used. Um, that I'm probably guilty of myself. <laughs> but it's things like grace notes and it's just yeah. where to put it. Now, obviously, this is completely redundant if you put it in an electronic environment where, you know, no one really cares. But if you want to emulate a real drummer, there are certain subtleties involved that make all the difference. Yeah, I would agree. I'm a big um, exponent of getting the hi-hats right, you know, getting opening them by degrees and, you know, just articulation of the hi-hat really helps to mimic you know a feel a live feel because of that you know the expressiveness that you can get through the hi-hat from sort of tight shut to to wide splashy open and you can really use that to great effect and uh, i mean i like to think i can do some of it myself but obviously i'm not a drummer but i think that's important you know and, and all those things are and also like you say you can't hit two things three things at the same time and that really does help get the realism up but the, but the libraries i mean they're just incredible rich i mean do you use any of this stuff I use probably all of this stuff, quite a bit of it. I have BFD. I have addictive drums. I have battery. Um, I've been doing drum realism for a long, long time. And I agree that for the most part, as Dave says, drummers know better. But yeah. in some cases, they don't. But But knowing what a drummer can and would do in your head is really the key. And having these fantastic tools like those drum programs I mentioned um, really helps 
but it's more in wrapping your head around what a drummer is and applying that to whatever you've got. Uh, one of the greatest compliments I was ever, sort of backhanded compliments I was ever paid was uh, in the mid nineties, I had done some drum programming for some demos we were doing up at Niles and uh, Bernard Edwards came in and played bass for the afternoon. And at the end of the session, he turned to me and he said, who played drums? Wow. And I thought, yes, <laughs> it was me. Shiny fingernail so, moment. Yeah. Fantastic. Definitely. It's, it wasn't even intended as a compliment, but I just, great he said that yeah that is a big he'd been playing to them all day and that's back then which is kind of harder to emulate even you know than it more much harder than it well, then presumably than it is yeah now. well that's why i say it's less to do with the, the actual source of the sounds although they obviously have to be believable but it's much to do with how the programmer can wrap his or her head around what a drummer ought to be doing in a given moment and doing that yeah and not doing more than that not having as dave says the right hand doing two three different things at the same time and when when the drummer leaves the hi-hat and goes to play other parts of the kit what does he do with the hi-hat then well quite often he's using the foot hat and keeping time or something like that and if you if you and then then when there's a crash symbol there's almost never also a closed hat with it you know what i mean stuff like that and when you and when you really examine what a drummer does and try to do that it gets you very close a couple of comments from the chat room matt sills i wish there was a good book on drum programming uh ed f says rich should do a training series <laughs> how about oh, it rich isn't that, isn't that nice <laughs> yeah that's it another is. another good compliment i suppose the thing is also because obviously now we're so used to uh, particularly in the pro tools environment you know you record a live drummer with a band and then you end up either kind of getting it to the grid or you know replacing the sounds in some case i mean certainly in metal and stuff you know it happens all the time I don't know whether uh, we get into a situation where it's almost, you know, budgetary constraints. We'll say, look, we can't afford to record the drums. We're just going to have to do them like that. It must happen already. Oh, it's been happening to me for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I it suppose. has. Yeah, no, or but I suppose, I suppose that's it, isn't it? I mean, but when you do do a drum session, I did one uh, back in the spring and it was great. You know, it was just so nice to sort of see there and hear it. And, you know, especially if they're a good enough drummer to actually kind of, to, to mostly be usable and what you can do you you can do some great stuff with the recorded drum sounds you don't have to replace them but but this kind of thing it just seems like it's it's making them a bit of an endangered species and you'll end up with these kind of super drummers who who can do that and do the programming and what have you i mean well, dave but- you uh, mark sorry mark do you what do you what's your approach to programming drums i mean you i've heard some of your stuff over recent years that's got live drum feel it's probably BFD or addictive drums, I would imagine. Right. Uh, and my approach to programming drums is I've decided that I'm not a drummer. I'm not really a drum programmer, like, but I used to like to think that I was. Uh, so in terms of techno drum programming and Acid House and stuff like that, then yes, I probably know all the patterns and how to create them, but... Uh, so my approach to programming the drums is find something believable and then start playing to it. And then, um, I don't know, it kind of sounds believable. If it's believable, uh, it, tends, it tends to be a bit sparse without too many clever fills or anything like that. But I think if, as soon as you start to try and do too many clever fills, it starts to sound a bit 
less believable. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, min- minimalism, it's it's almost, I mean, I haven't done a deep drum, drum programming for, for a little while now, but it's almost, you know, you it's, again, it's the discipline thing. Hold back, hold back, hold back, so that when you do, like, a, a skip snare fill, like once, it's got a real impact rather than just being there every bar. Yeah. I mean, I just still need to decide which one I should buy, to be honest, and uh, I think I'm erring on erring more towards BFD than addictive drums. I've not tried addictive drums. I'll have to check them out because I've heard a couple of people talk to me about them say that they're, they're really good. Well, they've got a very, very convincing demo. Uh, but I've used all the drum beats in the demo now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I need to either buy it or, or think about BFD. Uh, <laughs> Howard uh, Scar in the scoop ma- in the uh, in the chat room uh, reminds me Loop Masters Nick of course Loop Masters do actually not just loops they've got these kind of multi-track uh, products which are just multi-track drums and they have some really good dub ones actually that were just you know a, a drum session recorded discreetly that you can kind of chop up and use as you wish and they are live performances and I must admit when I heard them I was kind of like wow this is a really great feel and he said yeah that's because it's a multi-track and I was like ah okay so you know I guess it's uh, having a good real drummer and being able to work to it also it's the fit because it's hard to make it's hard to program feel into a track if it wasn't there in the first place yeah that would be kind of cool actually because the one thing i don't like about bfd and addictive drums is that you're working in the midi realm and whenever i use any of their stuff i tend to bounce it back into audio and then cut it up and play around with it a bit so maybe multi-track drums might be uh, might mm. be more useful. It's to kind of the way to go, Rich. Yeah. The, the the pressure is mounting in the chat room for you to do a <laughs> uh, a drum programming tutorial. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I suppose it is. Yeah, <laughs> well, if you ever is. get a moment, perhaps we can discuss it. <laughs> well, and the other thing I was going to point out, not that the, I would argue against what they're suggesting, uh, is that most of these uh, certainly uh, BFD and addictive come with scads of pre-programmed drum grooves that can then be imported edited tweaked and otherwise manipulated and so if you really i mean the first place to get an insight it for me is to import a little bit of what they did and look at what they've done well a lot of them are taken from real drummers aren't they they're just grooves that have been grabbed from great field drummers and just sort of midiized midified or whatever yeah, I don't know. I, I, I suppose you record it and then you go back and you program it. I, that's one way to go about it. Hmm. The funny thing is that while we come to this point of extreme realism in the way the drum sampling goes and how the, the hits change with velocity and if you hit the thing twice, it shifts from right hand to left hand and all that stuff, is the tools that enable us to now take live performances and use them in similar ways on a grid have improved so much now that you can keep so much more of the ebb and flow of a live thing when you do use those. And so the differences between them automatically sort of shrink because a lot of people work to a grid now. Yeah. Even when they're using live drums. And I found the last time, about a little over a year ago, I did a rock project in LA and Bob Clearmountain had recorded the drums and uh, I was given the task of, of bringing them in to uh, shape. And using the tools available today and uh, doing much more sparse work with them yields a much more um, desirable result. And so the whole thing is becoming sort of, 
you can do it any which way. You really can get the result any number of different ways. Well, I'm into that. I mean, a more variety of how to do it is a good thing because it'll all always be a little bit different for everybody, and that's kind of what you want. You don't want too much uniformity because that would just be rubbish. May as well just use a kind of, you know, the same drummer or the same drum loop. Hey, the funky drummer, for instance, which is a great, obviously, feel loop, but, uh, yeah, we could do without <laughs> a whole decade of pop records with the funky drummer as the basic loop, and I am guilty. I hold my hand up, my lord. Exhibit one and two and three and right up to probably six A, I'd imagine. Anyway, folks, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting discussion. Some sort of wider, bigger, kind of more philosophical topics covered today. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed it in the chat room. Remember, if you want to join us live in the chat room, sonicstate.com forward slash live is the place to do it. Uh, obviously, also, you know, please do leave us any messages. We've got the Sonic Talk Skype line. There are also some phone numbers which you'll find in the show notes that you can ring from the uk and the us to to leave messages uh, always like nice to hear from you as it is to have you in the chat room so thanks to everybody in the chat room and thank you also to my local guests uh, i'll start by saying goodbye to uh, rich hilton uh, from connecticut thank you very much i'm uh, very pleased you could make it this week thank you very much i always enjoy it and uh, we'll be uh, getting the petition together to get you to do that uh, dr- drum programming 101 uh, I'll, I'll i'll pass you on some paperwork shortly Okay, Nick. <laughs> and uh, also, thank you to uh, Mark Tinley. Aspergineering.com, thank you very much for joining us. I'm glad you made it back from the schoolroom. I'm going to throw another URL in. Actually, yes, please do. Because I've noticed that when I'm on these kind of things, that when I say aspergineering.com and have to spell it out and everything, that makes it difficult for people to visit my website. That's very I, true. So I have registered a new url which is autismhero.com because that's snappy and memorable and easy to spell there's no okay that's a-u-t a-u-t-i-s-m-h-e-r-o.com exactly (laughs) cool thank you very much and when are you going to send me that micro sampler i've got it here actually i have got a video camera you know i could do a video well we'll 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 have to talk about it we'll have to talk about it it's a possibility i'm itching to get my hands on one <laughs> that is the cool micro sample of course which i have to have sitting to my left i was hoping to incorporate into the show and play back some amusing samples but i can't figure out how to stop it from monitoring on input um which caused all sorts of uh bussing and double problems so uh, maybe next time i'll have it sorted out but it's very cute and also dave spears from g4 software thank you very much for joining us i know you're very busy too and uh, appreciate you giving up some of your time to join us and uh and always nice to talk to you thank you very much um, just out of interest, I did a load of um, drum programming tutorials for Computer Music Magazine years ago. So ah. everyone's got those sitting around. I think it were, they were called Style Council. Style Council. I see what you yeah, did I there. I don't know whether they're online. I don't know. I think they've just got a blog kind of set up on... Uh, I remember Music. those, actually. I do vaguely remember that. There you go. Oh, I don't okay. think That's I've got I... those magazines anymore. But... Well, the copy revert... Does it not revert to you after a certain amount of time? Just uh, bang them out again and we'll publish them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it did actually. I think it was like ten months or something. Where's that ma- that magazine's not around? To yeah, see it's you computer music. Anyway. It's a it's a great tome. It's um, Ronan is the editor. He's a top chap. I saw him the other day actually. Top chap, top editor, top magazine. Oh, it is it's still around? Is it? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Not seen it. Well, I must be going to the wrong news agent then. Thank you very much. That was Sonic Talk number one hundred and forty-six. Um, it's over. <laughs>